and this is the distinction, right? We talked about it last week, this week. There is a huge difference between fragmented YouTube videos and cliff notes and, and the opposite of flow. I'm going to sit down with this book and be captured by it. Good afternoon, everybody. Hi, Rachel. Hey, I'm Rachel Phillips Buck, VP for Student Success at Ferris Resources, joined today by Matt Boisvert, our president. Hey, Matt. Hi. It's great to be with you. Great to be on yeah. Cap and Gown. You've joined us for Cap and Gown, um, streaming live on LinkedIn. So happy for so many of you to join us that way. I know some of you listen to us as a podcast, so thank you for that. Um, we, I feel like, are having a good year. We made it through February. Hallelujah. Wow. So it was a bit the first February. It was, uh, it's always, you know, we talk about in the rhythm of the academic year that February is the hardest month. And so happy to have made it through that. Now, listen, we have some accountability issues, Matt, that we need to clear up. Are you listening? Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Clear. Yeah. Because on our last capping down, when we were talking about canceling the noise, I told you that I was going to go through and change all of the notifications on my phone to pare it down. So I only had a very, very few that would activate and I did it. I have so many apps on my phone. It was kind of, I mean, I deleted some of them, but I got rid of the notifications as well. What did you do to make your life less noisy? So, you know, Apple, the iPhone now has a way of like consolidating everything into a summary. And so I've, I've really, I've gone the kind of reader's digest style. Um, yeah. But the other thing that I did is, is uh, well, as we ta are talking about reading our books, I just, I really spent time focused in and, and uh, in flow finishing my books. So Nice. Well, that's good. I, okay. I think I, did a good, I think I did a good job. All right. Well, I hope that all of our listeners uh, did something to make their life a little less noisy. Um, also, we're talking about, you remember our theme this month is about choosing joy. Look at this book that I found at the Dollar Tree. It's called Happiness Found in Translation, A Glossary of Joy from Across the World. Nice. So these ha this has different, and you know, I love words. So this has different words that talk about joy from different languages. So I'm going to give you three. Okay. Are you ready? I okay. Am. The first one is Creole from Trinidad and Tobago. It is Badozi, Badozi, which I just like saying, but it means bewildered and discombobulated joy. That's I think I'm going <laughs> to add that into my everyday language. Badozi. All right. Say it again. Badozi. It's a Badozi. No, sorry, Bazodi, Bazodi is what it is. Bazodi, it is bewildered and discombobulated joy. Joy, it's great. Yep, and, and then from Italian, we have spritzatura, spritzatura, okay, which means the graceful freedom endowed by practice and skill. So it's like, it's like success where they're underneath, there's like a studied carelessness. Like I'm working like a duck, you know, their legs beneath the water, you know, how they look like they're smooth, but they're working really hard. They okay. are. Yeah. All right. Okay. And then our last one is Norwegian, which, you know, my sister and her family speak Norwegian. So I'm sure I'm going to get a phone call after this because this, I'm going to say it wrong. But it is a tapaluk scarp, a tapaluk scarp, which means after wisdom, in other words, the knowledge you gain when you make a mistake after wisdom. Isn't that good? That is good. I can't wait to hear how you actually pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, it's totally don't. I'm sure that if you said that in Norway, they'd be like, <clears throat> you're not speaking our language. But yeah. Okay. Anything else on your list to talk about before we move on to the State of the Union? I mean, it's almost spring break. So congrats, everyone. You made it almost you to spring it. break. Yeah, that's right. In fact, next week, I am going to be doing cap and gown from California. So I'm going to visit um, our family friends in California with my daughter. So that'll be fun. Okay, so it is time for State of the Union. 
You know, if you only join us by podcast, you get the sound effect there, but you really should join us live so you can see the graphics that Trey has worked so hard to build. They're pretty awesome. All right, Matt, the first one, I'm just going to, you know, I like, I like some good snark. So I'm just going to tell you that there is an article that came out in Higher Ed Dive um, that is from the magazine U.S. News and World Reports the uh, CEO and executive chair of that magazine had it like an impassioned defense of the magazine's rankings last week, talking all about how the prominent colleges who aren't going to use their rankings anymore don't want to be held accountable by an independent third party, talking about how Harvard maybe doesn't want to use these rankings, but it's really the only way for us to know whether or not a school is doing well. And he is in the same boat as the author I told you about last week, who was defending the <laughs> ACT and the SAT. Right. So both news world rankings and the ACT and ACT are having to go a little bit on the offensive. Like, hey, it's a good idea. It's super helpful. It's now, a, I it's will, big business. It's a very it's a important business. addition yeah. for them to produce that. Yeah. And I will remind you, though, that it usually actually benefits smaller schools, right? Harvard doesn't need this ranking for everybody to know that's a good school. Actually, it is smaller schools who benefit for this ranking because you may have never heard of them, but then they're promoting these schools up the up the chain to say, hey, you've never heard of whatever, but it's a great school. Um, what's really interesting, though, is that there's so many lawsuits in the last couple of years of that data being manipulated because it's coming straight from the students. So things like throwing extra money at students to come back and all there's just a lot of ways for you to manipulate your rankings. Um, so it's a complicated issue, but he is pretty snarky in this. Like, I don't know what's wrong with you people. You for sure should keep using us. OK, the next article, which is in in some ways a little bit lagging or maybe maybe a lot lagging. But I think there's some relevance to our conversations um, around inequity. This is coming out of theconversation.com. It's called Three Things the Pandemic Taught Us About Inequity in College and Why They Matter Today. So this is basically a retrospective of what happened to students in the pandemic. And you and I have been talking about these things for three years. We're not the only ones. A lot of people have been talking about this. The first one is that the digital divide disrupts learning. You remember, Matt, in the middle of COVID where students were at home, we talked to students who were composing their essays on their phones we talked to a student who climbed, who took a car and climbed a mountain to get service to be able to yeah. submit their paper. You remember that? I do. Um, so all of those things are true still. And I think the relevance of that is that we have so many commuter students who are not on our campus, who are not traditional. And just because those things became very transparent and now maybe they're becoming more opaque because we're not at not not everybody is learning from home does not mean we can dismiss those problems as solved. We have to continue to pull them up to the top so we can address the, the inequity. Yeah, so I mean, the amount of learning that happened during COVID about it, like you said, so in, in this article, they talk about your living condition is your learning condition or your living environment is your learning environment. Right. Yeah. So they talk. Yeah. So digital divide, they say your living conditions are your learning conditions. So I don't have a desk in my house or I moved in with my siblings. We have one bedroom and I have five people that I'm sharing, sharing with that. Right. That remains true for many of our students. We can't just pretend like, okay, we fixed that problem or it's not in front of us anymore. Right. I, I Um, hope we, right in the center, you know, as we, as we've talked with schools about what's your plan for your commuter population to have a place to go when they're on campus so they don't have to keep leaving, go back to their apartment to finish a, a project or a paper. But you, actually have, yeah. you actually have spaces and you've planned for that commuter population. So that's a really yeah. important article. 
Um, and then the last one in the article is that many students are family caregivers as well, which remains true, right? That you have older siblings taking care of younger siblings, you have parents who have jobs. And so if you are a yeah. commuter and you're working from home, you're doing the dishes and you're watching the kids and you're doing all of that kind of stuff. And so just making sure that we don't forget those are still still issues that we have to solve. Yeah, for sure. Oh, okay. Um, this is really interesting. On, let's see, this just happened, February 17th, there was a court decision that came down on the issue of Title IX and esports. Okay. So basically, the US District Judge uh, Carlos Mendoza said that esports do not count as athletics, like in the athletic equation for figuring out whether or not a, a school is in compliance with Title IX. Yeah. So Equal. this came, yeah, this came specifically out of, um, what is it, <clears throat> FIT, uh, what's the name of the school? You, you said it earlier. What is it? Florida oh, Institute Florida. of Technology. Yeah, where they had a lawsuit and that school included esports in their equation to say that they were compliant First of all, esports is relatively new. Like when you put it in the timeline of all of academia, right? Like esports is sure. pretty new. Yeah. Starting um, to grow. It is, yeah, it is a one point two billion dollar plus industry globally. So it's wow. going to continue to grow. Um, <laughs> this judge said he's like, I don't find this uh, issue to be at all confusing. It's very clear cut. Um, basically esports quote, do not require any athletic ability. And so they don't bear any resemblance to actual sports. And so you cannot include them in your title nine equation. The college argued that's not fair because the participants have to try out for teams and they have similar support services like athletes do. So of course this probably will be revisited and there's going to be a lot of other cases on this, but I think it's a pretty interesting, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to continue to grow, right? If you so. want to get started today, I think it's a really important question. What is a sport? How would you define a sport? You know? Yeah, so for sure. is, is playing cards a sport? Is bowling? Yeah, I don't know, Matt, because it's really interesting that he said af athletic, right? So he actually is not defining sport. He's defining athletics, which is different right I mean, we need to look up Trey in the background will you, will you chat me the definition of athletics because i'm pretty sure that that comes from some latin words that's going to help us figure this out right i just need a google well, definition of I mean, athletics i mean yeah there's yeah for that sure. would be great okay so once we get that we'll have a better idea about sports versus athletics but it's a pretty interesting it's pretty well, interesting. so this is really relevant if your school is counting your esports athletes in your title nine calculations um apparently you shouldn't be so yeah that's right and this is the first time it's been addressed in the court so trey yeah. says athletics is exercises sports or games engaged in by an athlete and the practice or principle of athletic activities which i'm pretty sure i learned in middle school that you're not allowed to define a term using the same term so i don't know about that i don't that wasn't that helpful All right so the definition, the debate on what makes someone an athlete, right? Yeah. We we don't have time for that, but yeah. Oh, here's another one. Okay. Athlete is a person who is trained or skilled in exercises, sports, or games requiring physical strength, agility, and stamina. So okay. I feel All like right. that's a help, right. helpful. Um, I just think I know that the courts, this is going to be in the court for a long time because it's going to be, we're going to have to come down to the essence of it. Right. So, okay. Well, I have a couple I more for bad. you. I feel bad for the esports folks who they were kind of thinking they were athletes. Do they get and a letterman jacket? I don't know, but okay. they should. Okay, so the next one, just the title of this is really heartbreaking to me. This is out of USA uh, Streets blog. It's called One Flat Tire Away from Dropping Out. Why Transit to Community Colleges Matter. So this is coming out of a civic, mapping, a civic mapping initiative 
that says a full 43% of community and technical colleges have zero transit stops within a half mile of their campus, which is generally considered to be the threshold for walkability. Okay, so 43% of community and technical colleges do not have a stop that you can get to within half a mile. Georgia, for example, 72% of schools aren't easily accessible by bus or train. Um, and of those schools, 80% are a full 4.5 miles from the nearest station. Wow. So this article goes through a couple of different states, calls out Michigan, calls out Maine. Um, just the idea that you need to be paying attention, especially for community colleges, about how commuters are going to get to your campus, because oftentimes their family only has one car. The parents are taking that to work. If they have the luxury of taking the car, they are one flat tire away from having to drop out because they don't have the money to, to pay to get it fixed. So a lot of community colleges, I'm thinking about McLennan, right, who does like they rent bikes and they have a food pantry and they have social workers. Um, the idea that you would have a grant specifically to fix flat tires for your students, if that's the barrier to them coming. Um, but then also just being super intentional about engaging with your transit authorities. There's a new legislation called the PATH, P-A-T-H, to College Act, which gives dedicated money to um, extend existing bus routes to community campuses. This mapping project said that an additional 25% of community colleges could be made accessible just by extending a route that already exists. Like, hey, can you just put in one more stop that's going to go two miles so that you'll be closer to campus? So there's some money for that. But this um, article is saying there has to be for your campus a direct relationship between the, cam the campus and the transit agency to negotiate better service fair discounts, and uh, changing the routes. I was thinking about when you and I were at North Park Campus, and you remember we walked down and they were like, and here is the bus stop where all of our students get off because they're commuting from all over Chicago. So I just, you know, I like those things where it's like, of course you should be able to get to a community college by bus. That seems very important, right? I mean, <clears throat> I thought, well, that's like embedded in the name community college. And so then I pulled up, uh, our local uh, bus map and wanted to see well, what bus would you take to go to the local college here um, and the, the community college and there isn't a bus that stops at the you actually you can either schedule a ride or take the bus to the mall and apparently there's a van that you then get in that takes you you can get in the van and it'll take you where you need to go Hey, Matt, you know what? We have had three different interns who rode the bus to come to their internship at our office. Yeah. And they were so committed and such hard workers, right? To be like, I have this internship and I'm going to get on the bus and ride it two stops and then walk three blocks to get here. I mean, it's just, it shouldn't have to be difficult. And at the same time, the commitment that those students are showing in order to navigate that process, I think is really, really remarkable. So, yeah. yeah. Pretty interesting. So that's so okay. important. If I were president of a university, I would check. I mean, you should try and ride the bus to get to your school. Just see what that experience 100%. is like. How, how often are they delayed or that something could go wrong there? Just, just to have that insight. And certainly yeah. if the bus is not dropping off at your campus, exactly what you said, use this path to get that going. Yeah. Okay. This next one, <clears throat> I am debating how deeply I want to dive into it. Cause I think it's a whole cap and gown on advising. Like we need to have experts on, but I'm just going to say inside higher ed, as they do often did another, um, student voice survey with 3000 undergraduate students specifically around advising. Um, I find this, uh, okay, I'm just going to give you a caveat about this because surely this cannot yeah. be true. That's how I feel about it. Surely That's how I feel it about it. Be true. Okay. Right. But, 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 but there's a perception in these 50, numbers. For sure. 55% of respondents 
said they have gotten advising that is seen as fundamental to their academic journey. So 55% of the 3,000 students said they had received advising that we would consider to be fundamental to the academic journey. So the people who did the survey were like, hold on a second, something is wrong. That seems that surely that can't be true. Perhaps undergraduates and upperclassmen are, are skewing this. So they dug more into the, de the details of it. And actually, the statistic when you take out those elements, when you only look at students who intend to graduate this year, of that population, only 57% of students said they got guidance on required courses and course sequences needed for graduation by the advising process. So 43% said they did not. Right. What? Right. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I mean, that's heartbreaking. If, if you're an advisor and this is your life, you're pouring into your students and they're not recognizing or understanding the value of what you're doing, which I, I think but that's I don't, right. I mean, that's the question is, did they get advising? Like, you know, because we talk about intervention and students are like, no one ever intervened with me. And we're like, those seven conversations you just have, those were all interventions when you're already right. ran into you. Right. Right. So. But still, 56% of four-year college students says that they have gotten this kind of advice. Only 56%. 49% of community college students say they have gotten this advice. By race, there's an even greater difference. 63% of white students say they've been advised on required courses and sequences compared to only half of Asian, Black, or Latino students. So again, even within that population, we're like, oh, look, white students are getting more advising, but it's only 63%. So th this is, I would recommend that you read this entire article. It talks about how you engage with non-traditional students. It talks about the model for um, advising, that it's like a mentor and an advocate and a mediator and a coach, how many advisors are faculty advisors versus professional advisors. So I just think this is probably going to be an article that we make the foundation for some really specific conversations about advising, because that number is shocking to me. It is shocking. And Rachel, we've talked about the the dimensions of service excellence or, or service quality. And I would say it this I don't know, but a lack of tangibles, the lack of physical evidence, if you're having a meeting with your advisor and you walk away empty handed, that's probably a contributing to um, this really, really surprisingly low rate. Yeah. Another thing that comes out of this is only two in 10 students say they were required to meet with their advisor once, two in 10 students, right? So one fifth and then okay. one fifth of students say they were required to meet peri periodically with their advisor. I have to admit, I'm actually really shocked that there are not more mandatory meetings with advisors, right? So like you have your advisor code and you have to meet with your advisor and blah, blah. So I, I'm really shocked. We need to do a deep dive on that. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. I want to get to our topic, but I have one last um, interesting article for you. So this student who was a student at Washington State University, she's a senior, 21 years old. She got an email that said she was going to have her, um, let's see, what does it say? She's going to have her diploma withheld and something else because she has a balance on her account. And it's a pretty... It's a pretty rude, oh, low, uh, oh, late fees and withhold her diploma. She got this email from the bursar's office. And so she looked at it and it's like, our records show there's an outstanding balance, non-payment results in late fees and registration and diploma holds, blah, blah, blah. You have to go here to do this. And she was freaking out about it. She was sure. like, what charge is this? How much is it? I have $90 in my bank account. How am I going to pay for this? So she went, she did everything they told them. She went and looked and to see the balance. Matt, it was a penny. It so was ridiculous. literally that she owed a penny. So she put it on TikTok. She has 400,000 views and tons of comments. Sadly, there are a lot of comments by students who are like, oh yeah, that happened to me. Students are like, I yeah. thought the email I got about my 30 cents was bad. Um, so first of all, guys, we got to get the process right. We need a threshold. Don't be crazy town, right? 
But also what's really interesting is that Lane like talked to the university and the university didn't waive the fee. They Penny. said, we're looking into it. We'll look into it. And she's like, okay, well, I mean, if it doesn't get waived, I guess I'll go to the bursar's office with a penny because if I pay online, there's a $3 convenience pay a fee. So I'd rather not pay 300 times the balance. And so then the, the people in this article contacted the school, Washington State University, and they said, um, they, it's okay. We don't, we're not that strict. They just won't get their diploma if they have a balance over $5. <laughs> Talk about setting your alumni up to be real happy with you. Why? Why would you do that? I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Well, great, great article again, Rachel. I mean, so we're we're one flat tire away. We're apparently at Washington State one penny away. Yeah. Um, and all it's just unnecessary stress right now. Right. You know. That's right. Like. Exactly. And it's, and listen, I just, you know, we are so bossy with our technology that a person has to be in the middle. We do not send automatic emails. You know why? Because of this, because yeah. when you send that kind of email over 30 cents or a dime or a penny, you do not do yourself any favors for setting up a warm feeling towards your university. Right. So, okay. That unfortunately is, is the state of the union that I have wow. for you. Um, I do want to dive into our topic. We're talking about stolen focus. You guys, this book by Johan Hari, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. Man, it has been kind of a kick in the pants for me because as I am trying to teach you guys how to teach your students about this, I am being indicted left and right about yeah. how I've not done a good job of protecting my deep thinking. So our topic today, we actually have two different pieces. One... I realized as I was getting ready for this, I, it's my two favorite things. I I love that phrase, protecting your deep thinking. That's yeah, that's really good, Rachel. Because really, I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's the it's the flip of um, having your focus stolen, being protective so that you can do deep thinking. Yeah. Okay. So we are two topics today are sleeping and reading. Like I said, my two favorite things, although I don't get to do either one very uh, enough. But Matt, I want to set the context because we are really, really our focus of, of these conversations is about how you can help your students with this idea of deep thinking, which really society right now is set up to distract them and not let them do deep thinking. Right. So I want to set up the framework of this conversation is a little bit different than conversations we've had before. And that is, I want to teach our listeners how to make a case for sleeping and reading as important things that our students should invest in. And so I would just say at the beginning of this conversation, when I'm thinking about student success and all the stuff you put in your first year experience, if you are not having real conversations about the impact of lack of sleep on your students and the lack of deep, long-form reading, then you're not doing a good job of protecting that deep thinking piece. Okay. That's good. So the first one is sleep. This is really interesting because it's coming out more and more. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we did an article on sleep debt that talked about how sleep deprives students of GPA points. So the less sleep you've had, the worse you do on your GPA um, and we talked about then how saying to students, so before this, all the sleep stuff came out, we would say, we talked to a really big school that spent a lot of money and a lot of research trying to figure out what are the things that make students successful. And what they found out was what my dad told me when I was a freshman is <laughs> if you go to class, you will pass, right? Well, I think in partnership with that, all of the sleep study stuff is if you go to class and you get a good night's sleep you will be more successful on campus. So I think we need to make a case for that for our students so that yeah. they can not just feel like we're nagging them, but there's scientific evidence that says these things are true, right? So, and also not only is this important for us to tell our students, but you have to model it because, I mean, I think we're all exhausted and, um, and, and it's just hard. As you make this case for students, hopefully our listeners are also hearing uh, a challenge they need you really need to rest so yeah because we want to choose joy and sleep is 
yeah. one of the ways you do that. Okay, so in this book, he talks about how he had been trying to live by the rhythms of machines, going endlessly day and night until finally the battery conks out, right? So you just go, 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 go until you're like, <clears throat> I'm going to die. I got to go to sleep, go to sleep. Versus that living by the Since I was a little kid, <laughs> I would just go, go, go. My mom would find me curled up behind the door. I finally quit. I finally yeah. went down. But yeah, it's not healthy. Right. Versus living in the rhythm of the sun, which is as the sky goes dark, you wind down and finally you're rested. Then when the sun comes up, you're ready for the next thing. You wake up naturally, which I listen. I appreciate the language of waking up naturally. I don't think that's realistic. I don't know any any way that I could order my life where I would be allowed to just wake up when I wake up in the morning. I don't really think that that happens. Right. Can you imagine? It would not be at Look, 605, I tell you that. Well, there's this whole topic on, so in the 1800s, or I mean, go back to ancient life living, where human beings had second sleep. They went to bed, they slept for about four hours, they woke up, they were up for about three hours, and then they went back to sleep and slept another four hours. This whole thing, so Josh Dockery introduced me to this second sleep idea. Look it up because what we're doing right now, it's so new. It's just since the advent of electricity that we've compressed our sleep into one time. And, and so once we go to bed, that's our time. And we wake up when we have to, when our alarm goes off. So sleep has yes. changed a lot for us. Yeah. So only 15% of people surveyed uh, in this book wake up feeling refreshed. We all just stop to answer that question. When is the last time you woke up and you're like, I'm ref I feel refreshed. I feel like I got a good night's sleep. In the last 100 years, the amount of sleep we've gotten has fallen by 20%. Here's what's important for students to know. Sleep is changing, but the way that it expresses itself, a lack of sleep expresses itself in hyperactivity. It is harder to focus. You have crazy brain you are more likely to do the kind of like skipping around thinking that we talked about last week because you're, it's like ADHD. It's like, you cannot focus deeply on a thing if you are lacking in sleep. Um, Anyone who's had a child or has taken care of oh a child, God. you know, if they're overtired, that's exactly what happens. And, yeah. and so I, I can just remember uh, with, with my three kids the, oh, we have got to put them down. Otherwise, yeah. it's gonna we're going to be past the point of no return. They're just, just going to go crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So um, they did a study in this book. There's a woman who actually has done a lot of research about college students. I found this fascinating. College students have the same amount and quality of sleep as active duty soldiers and parents of newborn babies. Isn't that amazing? So you think about in this article about GPA, they said like of the students that we surveyed, barely any of them fell asleep before 2.30 a.m. And most right. of them only slept six and a half hours per night. They they really are in a deficit um, position when it comes to how much sleep they're able to get. Wasn't the um, average they, like they went to bed at 2 a.m.? Isn't that? 2.30. Yeah, 2.30 yeah, a.m. Yep. So um, what's really difficult for college students is that unfortunately they are used to being exhausted because of the way we do elementary, middle, and high school. They are used to being in a constant sleep deficit. And so even asking them to imagine a time where they were well-rested is very, very difficult for them because they have just constantly not been taking care of their sleep, right? So it would be very hard to give them an example of how your brain is more efficient when it's rested because they perhaps have not experienced that in their lifetime, right? That yeah. they're just constantly sleep deprived and it looks like inattention and an inability to focus. Um, I think it's super helpful to talk to students about what happens when you're sleep deprived and what that looks like, what the science says about that. So when you think about losing focus, there's a bunch of experiments where they kept people up for a certain amount of time, right? And the very first thing that they lost was focus. Um, it's really interesting. In this book, it talks about if you have kept someone up for 19 hours straight, 
you become cognitively impaired as unable to focus and think clearly as if you had gotten drunk. If you were kept awake for one whole night and continued walking about the next day, instead of taking a quarter of a second to respond to a prompt, participants in the experiment were taking six seconds. So 24 times as long for your brain to respond to what's happening when you are in a position where you are sleep deprived. And that's obviously acute sleep deprived, but it's cumulative, right? So if you're only getting six hours of sleep every night, you're going to lose the ability to focus um, over time. That's why it's so powerful to frame it as sleep debt. Like, right. You, you are in debt. So Yeah. Because you remember this article says, like, you can't make it up in one night. You can't not sleep well for the week and then on the weekend try to make it up. That's not how it works. Um, the other thing that I think would be really fun when you're talking to students about this is that a lack of sleep in your brain biologically translates as an emergency because what other thing could be going on in your life where you are not resting your body and getting the sleep you want other than there must be an emergency. Like you must be in war. You must be trying to raise a kid. There must have been like a tornado. Something awful must be going on when you aren't keeping track of your sleep and protecting it. Right. So when you're sleep deprived, your body is like, oh my gosh, we're in an emergency, raise their blood pressure, make them eager for fast food and sugar because we need really fast calories to be able to burn because we're obviously in the middle of an emergency. You have a higher heart rate and your brain says all of that stuff about focus, memory, and deep thinking, forget all of that. Don't resource that anymore. We're in an emergency. We're not sending blood there. We're not going to forget it, right? So yeah. what happens to your body is it becomes like, like we are for the short, short term burning all of the things that we can, burning all the calories, high blood pressure, high heart rate, and stolen focus is about you don't have the capacity. You your brain literally turns off the capacity for you to do deep thinking, to yeah. preserve memories yeah. and for you to focus on something, which I think students would, I think that would resonate with them, right? The only good reason that your body can imagine you not getting enough sleep is there must be a crisis happening Some, right now. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. No, I hope it resonates with them because so it's like you said, I mean, they've, they've been raised into this pattern. And so trying to break that, um, I was just trying to think of like, how do you give the gift of rest to your students? How do you encourage them to take that gift? That's, that's a real challenge, but um, yeah. that experience can change their life. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I want, I'm gonna wrap this up because I want to make sure that we have enough time for reading. Um, two more things that I wanna tell you are important. The first one is there's something called a surge of waking drive, which is when the sunlight starts waning, when it starts getting darker, your brain has this like, um, what's that called when you adapt, like, like biological adaptation that says, oh my gosh, the sun is going down. I'm gonna give you a surge of energy so that you can do whatever you have to do before it's you're in total darkness, right? Like, oh my goodness, we've got to run to the cave before it's totally dark. Or, oh my goodness, we have to get some dinner before it's totally dark. So this is this, this adaptation that your body has made that when it starts to get dark, it provides you with a surge of energy. Um, so you just think about... Uh, in this book, it says 90% of Americans are looking at a screen within an hour of going to bed. So that is a problem because you have that light. But then the waning of that light, when the light starts to decrease, your body gives you the surge of energy, which is not conducive then to laying down and going to sleep, right? So you have to be yeah. really protective of, you can't just turn out the lights and go to sleep. It's highly likely that you're going to have this burst of energy, which actually would make it harder for you to fall asleep. I think that's really fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, and then also just talking to your students <clears throat> about what happens when they sleep, which is literally your brain is cleaning itself. Like all of the fluid is circulating. You are um, replenishing your energy. It is a re it's like doubling down now on your ability to use glucose which decreases over the day. And then it also uh, gives you dreams. 
to help you make sense of things, to solidify memories, and to help you solve problems, right? So all of that is just like, that's what's happening while you sleep. That's why when you get a good night's sleep, you're better focused. You can have a higher GPA. You can, you can do more sustained uh, engagement. Okay. So you guys, you know, I love action items. My action items here are good luck. <laughs> because I think we have to talk to students about this, but I really don't know how you can enforce to an 18 year old. Like this is a really important piece of health, much less as a, a an adult person with a fully formed brain that has self-control, how difficult it is to make good decisions in terms of like your, your sleep choices and etiquette and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so I think just putting that on the table as a student success element is incredibly important. And I just wonder if somebody had said that to me when I was in school, instead of make sure you get enough sleep, if they had said, these are the reasons and this is the outcome of, of depriving yourself of, uh, of sleep, if it would have made a difference in my choices, right? I'm Anything you want to add? Yeah, it goes back to your, your living condition is your learning condition. If your living condition is you're exhausted and you're not getting sleep, that's your learning condition. So um Hopefully, I, I think you've made a great case on this. It's really, uh, it, when you think about our 18 to 22-year-olds in particular, um, trying trying to do well, uh, but they're just exhausted. Um, they're at yeah. such a deficit. So yep, sure. good luck. So here's, yeah, here's a resource. We have um, a wellness article, Framing Sleep is Essential to Student Success. So that has some like really specific things that you can talk to students about. Um, it's it's mostly about making a, a conversation on your campus. That that's helpful. That's okay, so let's move on to reading. Um, because this is when we're talking about deep focus, we need to be well-rested so we're not hyperactive brain. But then there's this other piece of, of reading, Matt, and you were talking just about sort of the reading decline. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I have some statistics about it as well. Well, the, the, the thing that if you, if you look at and, and trying to think upstream, in America right now, we have a huge literacy decline. Um, right now, there are estimated 130 million Americans who read below the sixth grade level. And that's just gotten worse. That's 54% of 16 to 74 year olds. Um, and, and so it's just a, it's a huge problem. And one thing that we're seeing right now is that that group of, they were kindergartners when COVID hit, they were in first grade in that, that next year of a lot of uh, chaos in school and, 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 you know, all that was going on um, of, in that year of 2020, 2021. So they were first graders then. And what they're saying about that class, this is the class of 2032, um, high school graduating class of 2032, 43% of that class tested well below the benchmark that predicts future reading failure. So that's 43%. That's up from 26% in 2019. So when we're looking at the, the decline of literacy or the, the challenge of we have coming into just a few years coming into our universities, this group of students who are less literate, they read less as we've talked about. So not only are they, I mean, there's a literacy decline, but they're just reading less. They're spending less time at home reading books. Yeah. So let me give you some statistics about that. Gallup did a poll that said the proportion of Americans who never read a book in any given year tripled between 1978 and 2014. Now, 57% of Americans do not read a single book in a typical year. Um, and then less of half Americans read literature for pleasure. In fact, in one single year, 2011, paperback fiction sales collapsed by 26%. Yeah. So there's just a lot yeah. of evidence that this idea of long-form reading is really in jeopardy. 
And Matt, again, to make the case for why that is so important for our students, we want to talk about how it changes your brain and, and your ability to be empathetic. I was just thinking about our first year experience, um, collaborative reading, which so often is a not a nonfiction, which is a little bit different than a fiction book. But my question about that for our students is, are we explaining why it is so important to read? I was uh, reading an article today that said, even at Harvard, faculty, literature faculty are saying we cannot get our students to read books. So we're actually recommending YouTube videos and like shorts, like, like, what do we, oh, cliff notes, right? Like cliff notes for these books. And that's at Harvard. They cannot get yeah. our students to actually read the book. And this is the distinction, right? We talked about it last week, this week. There is a huge difference between fragmented YouTube videos and cliff notes and, and the opposite of flow. I'm going to sit down with this book and be captured by it, right? Absolutely. And, and really. Yeah. So he actually talks about reading as a place where most people find flow, where you are spending concentrated time focused on one thing. You're providing it value, right? You're, it is a practice that you are doing. It's not just this like popcorn junk food that you're eating uh, when you're reading a long form book. Um, and there is this piece of like reading a book as opposed to reading other, like reading on a screen teaches you to think in a linear way. So this thing happens and then it develops into this and then it develops into this versus reading for a screen from a screen. It's like a, a manic skip and jump from one thing to another. Mm -hmm. So what I think is so interesting about this is our CIO, James Langford, back in 2001, wrote a dissertation on how to write for the web. So he was actually looking at it in terms of like, we're used to long form. That's what our brains are used to. But now here's this new dynamic. How can we write for the web in a way that keep is, keeps students' engagement? So two things I want to tell you from his dissertation. The first one, just to give you context of when he wrote this, he said, presenting information in an efficient way, this is in 2001, in an efficient way that meets the needs of users will be increasingly important considering the explosive growth of the web estimated to be as high as 513 million users. In 2023, there are 4.76 billion users of the web. Okay, right. so that's the context of how do we write on a web page? But he says something really interesting. He says terms such as surf and browse instead of read are often used to describe web usage and support a very different image of the web reader than one often associated with reading, that of a person curled up with a good book engrossed in the story presented by the author. So I think it's so futuristic to say we, are, we now have this medium that's going to change the way that we are thinking about reading and this linear long form um, element. And our students don't have that experience. Like they grew up in this idea of yeah. sort of grabbing what you need and then moving on. It, it's not a reflective process, right? I love that. I, I love that you found James's dissertation. <laughs> and it, and it's, oh, there he is. Nice. Yeah. Great. Um, so I do, I think a really interesting uh, exercise for students would be to talk about this idea of the medium is the message. The way that you convey information tells you about the values and the, the reflection of life. So I have a couple examples that come out of this book. So one is the medium is the message. If we think about Twitter, so Twitter says, don't focus on, thing, on one thing for too long because the world, world could and should be understood in short, simple statements of 280 characters or less. The world should be interpreted and confidently understood very quickly. And what matters most is whether people immediately agree and applaud your statement, right? So because of the way the medium is built, that is the, the things that we are telling our students, these are the most important, right? As opposed to a book which says life is complex and if you want to understand it, you have to set aside a fair amount of time to think deeply about it and you need to slow down 
There is value in leaving behind your other concerns and narrowing your attention to one thing, sentence after sentence, page after page. And it is work thinking deeply about how other people live and how their minds work. They have complex inner lives just as you do, which I love. Like here's two ways that we're communicating information and just by virtue of the, the way that we're delivering it. Um, you know something about the value. So thinking about doing that for students where you say, Facebook, what does Facebook say the values are? Instagram, what does Instagram say? Um, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, what are all of these things and how do they communicate value? Matt, you know, I had a um, an app that I really loved that was called Minutia, which was once a day, you it would go off. It would be like, oh, it's time, Rachel. And you had 30 seconds to take a picture. And then it would be stored and you could only look at those pictures when it went off the next day. So you could scroll, you would take your picture and then you could scroll through. And I was just thinking about the medium of that, which is I had so many pictures of random events in my day that when I looked back, I would be like, my days are lovely, right? Yeah. Here yeah. I am walking down the street in a city or here I am doing a podcast or here I am talking to a client. There's so many places that are really lovely. And that's an example of the medium drawing your attention to a value, right? That's really uh, powerful. Yeah. Can you talk to us about the theory of mind that comes from long form reading? Well, okay. I don't know that I can unpack it completely, but here's, here's the path I, I want to take. And I'm really, I feel very convicted about getting back into reading books and specifically fiction. So I've, you know, I have a, a ton of nonfiction books that I've read or, or that I've got stacked up that I've started or, but to take time to dive into a, a fictional story and connecting with these fictional characters, sometimes in the fictional place, I told you, I just finished uh, Watership Down, mm -hmm. which is about rabbits and the rabbit, a rabbit's perspective in this world. It's really, it's a great book. It's a great book. But as I'm reading that, I am connecting with these rabbits and these characters. Well, what they have found, research has shown that by reading fiction, it increases your empathy. And part of, part of it is this theory of mind of as you're in a, a book and you're connecting with characters and you're seeing how they wrestle with challenges, you start to have this greater understanding of other people and that other people have their beliefs and the ways that they look at things, the ways that they react to things and feel about things. And you start to have that understanding or that empathy for, oh, other people handle these things maybe differently than I do. Um, that other people have challenges that I've never even considered. But as I'm reading through this book, and that was the beauty when I think back to fifth grade and the books that I read in fifth grade, like it opened up a whole world of yeah. experiences, ways of ways of interpreting people and environments or or challenges that we're facing them. So this idea of theory of the mind. So I love the I love the reiteration that people have complex inner minds just like you do. Yeah. And how would you know? How would you know that except that you are paying close attention to their journey and their reflections and their feelings and their memories and their path and all of those different elements? And I think um, for our students, sometimes the, the fact that we remember we talked about broadcasting and not receiving the fact that we think we can broadcast in 280 characters a complex issue or a reflection of our point of view or our perspective, I think then it, it makes us less empathetic because it's like, if I tell you, I can explain to you how I am in 280 characters and you look at it and you're like, it's what you just gave me is flat and stupid and without complexity then we both are at fault, right? Because I've chosen to broadcast something that way and you've chosen to say 280 characters, that's a stupid idea. And so <laughs> the, the idea that then we would say, no, actually, if you, if you really wanna understand my perspective on that, then let me tell you where I come from and how I got here and what the obstacles were 
and the people I loved that faced hard things and the ways we overcame them and how now I have this opinion or this experience or whatever. And then you're like, oh, thank you. That is way more complex than 280 characters, right? So when you're looking at some of the challenges facing our uh, culture right now, and, and you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm worn out with people who got mad at the McDonald's because they got the order wrong. And next thing you know, people are throwing food and milkshakes and there's just a, yeah. a I mean, just a lot of crazy. And so Sarah Conrath, she was writing, she, she did a study and found that empathy among college students declined between the 1970s and the 2000s. Um, and what she, she found was that the average level of empathetic, uh, empathic concern or sympathy for the misfortunes of others declined by 48% in that period of time. Okay. So the, the other was perspective taking or the ability to imagine others' points of view also declined by 34%. And so if we're looking at, we want, we want a culture and society and our students in our community to have perspective taking, empathy toward others. We want that. Well, that's where reading can help foster that. And specifically, um, as the research has shown, reading fiction kind of wires your brain in a different way. It wires it in several different ways. One is, is as you're reading it, the way that you're processing, but then the memories that you're making from that book, when you face a, a situation or you see something where you're going back to that part of your brain that has empathy and, and can recall this memory from this fictional story that you read. It's really fascinating. So, yeah, I think about, I mean, a couple of things there, that balance between your outward focus and your inward focus, right? Perceiving what is happening to this character in the book and then bouncing that off what you know to be true about you and saying that is like me, that's not like me, that helps me understand that. It's just a constant perspective change when you're reading. But yeah. also, Matt, I'm thinking about how often these days we are hearing about students who don't know how to be in community. They don't know how to have good conflict with each other. They really have difficulty meeting in the middle. It's like what I believe and what you believe. And if those two things are not congruent, then I can't have anything to do with you. And so I talked about James Langford, but Peggy Langford, his wife was a librarian. And she taught me when I was in school about, about bibliotherapy. And I did this with my daughter. Like, what is the hard thing you're going through? Then we're going to read this book that's going to talk about how you get along with people who think differently than you or how neighbors treat each other, even when you don't like each other. Right? <clears throat> that idea that you are using books for your students with the metacognition uh, tied to it that says this is going to help you understand your community and the people that you're connected to in a better way. It, it literally will rewire your brain so that you can appreciate, you know, in counseling, we say um, everything makes sense in context, which is the posture that if you can let me into your complex inner life, I can understand why you're doing what you're doing. Even if when I look at you and I'm like, you're crazy. Why would you do that? Right. If you will give me the right context, if I have the space and the time and the patience and the focus to listen to your context, what you are doing will make sense to me. And I think that's a thing that our students are lacking and need to learn in order to be successful. Um, okay. Anything else you want to add to the importance of deep, long form reading, specifically fiction? Well, I think one of the things that we're concerned about is, is I went through and just started reading what schools picked for their common reading for this year. And so many schools, it was listed as suspended that they didn't, they haven't started this back up since COVID. And it's so, it's just, I'm, convinced it's critical for your students to have that experience and, and really start developing that discipline. And I think the two topics go hand in hand, right? So if they're able to sleep more and have that focus and start to value that, that flow time and reading is a perfect way to see the value of being in this place of deep thinking 
spending time on one subject or one book and diving in, right? So for sure. Okay. So I'm going to leave you with two quotes from this book. The first one that says that's about reading books that says, if you think about the inner lives of other people over long periods of time, that patterns your consciousness, you will become more perceptive, more open and more empathetic. If you focus your time on disconnected fragments of shrieking and fury, your thoughts will become cruder and louder, and you will be less able to hear tender and gentle thoughts, which I would love to be in a room full of students and just give them those two statements and say, let's talk about how you've experienced that, right? So. Really good. I once again, we're, I'm going to have to stop with this book because I'm I get convicted every time that I have to do a better job of protecting things that are really important that are going to help me with that deep focus. So protecting our deep thinking is a way that we create joyful lives, um, not consuming lives, right? Not easy lives, but deeply joyful, meaningful lives. So I'm not going to commit to anything because. I've got to think about it a little bit, but maybe next week I'll tell you what I've decided to do in terms of protecting my sleep and committing well, to reading. Again, again, we're almost at spring break. It's a perfect time to get rest, find a great book, and just spend time for you, right? Yeah, for sure. That's right. All right, friends. Um, have a great rest of your day, and we will see you next week. 